0: Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor which allows
1: us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available
0: only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the y make project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y makecom
1: In episode 52 of Why Make, we talk with Katie Thompson, an artist, writer, creative consultant, and instructor based in the Lowcountry outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Katie wears many hats, including being a disabled mother of two and wife and partner to fine furniture maker Joseph Thompson.
0: Katie has a passion for people and sharing their stories and pursues her inclinations as a storyteller through her monthly online woodworking journal, Pin and Chisel and her ongoing project, The Women of Woodworking, in which she has helped to create a community gathering place for women and non-binary woodworkers.
1: We delve into many things with Katie, including her work with the Furniture Society, the Wood Art Alliance, and how she uses her chronic health conditions to make a positive
0: impact by advocating and sharing her experiences with others. Hold on tight and join us as we get inspired by a bionic woman, Katie Thompson. We would love to welcome Katie Thompson to the Why
1: Make podcast.
0: Welcome to Why Make, Katie.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, 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 always a, it's always a joy to do this. It's always a joy to spotlight many different makers and their history. So uh, as we always start this podcast, uh, what is your first memory of making something or thinking about making something? The Why Make question.
2: I think my first, my earliest memory of making something, I don't know if it was at like a Christmas festival or something like that as a kid. Um, You know, they have like a lot of like German holiday markets and things like that. And I remember going and making a little Christmas ornament and it was so much fun. It was like a, just a little, it was a couple actually, like two little wooden Just, you know, stuff you buy from the dollar store or something like that today. But at the time, it was so fun. And that's just a memory that's always, like, stuck with me. As the first time I remember being like, hey, like, I can paint and color and kind of connect with what I was doing. And I think also because I was finally, I was probably about five or six. I was at the age where I realized, like, the sentiment behind it. You know, I'm giving this to someone that I care about. And so... That's probably my earliest memory of making and also kind of feeling that connection that I have to it.
1: And and where did you grow up?
2: I grew up um, kind of all over the place, um, especially in the South. My parents uh, are in healthcare, and so every couple of years we would be moving to a new hospital. So I, I grew up in Texas, and then we moved to South Carolina. I, I think it was like 11, so yeah.
1: After your... Uh epiphany making Christmas ornaments did were you involved in the arts and education did you get an undergraduate degree in the arts well,
2: growing up I was always I loved art class I really liked public speaking and theater so I was always trying to do school plays and things like that student forums and when I went to college I started out planning to major in theater and um, unfortunately, I had a really bad health incident with a spinal cord injury and meningitis. And so that kind of changed my path a little bit. And I transferred to the College of Charleston and uh, majored in communications. And I, I loved it. And I uh, really like to focus on interpersonal communications and, you know, why we say the things we say and why we identify different meanings to things and how we communicate that with each other. And it very naturally tied into me starting to really express myself as an artist myself. I uh, started working for the Office of Cultural Affairs for the city of Charleston, um, putting on the Piccolo Spoleto Festival and the Charleston Farmer's Market. And so I had this opportunity to engage with the creative world on an administrative side. You know, I could see all all of the back end stuff that went into producing the plays and producing the community festivals and things like that. And I loved it. But I still had this creative voice that I knew I was gonna have to, it's gonna have to share sometime. And it took, it's taken a long time for me. I feel like to get where I've fully identified that voice, have become comfortable sharing that. Um, I think my undergraduate experience was incredibly helpful for me as far as you know, the business side of things and talking and sharing my story. And with the women of woodworking project and interviews that I do, like being able to talk with people that way and make them feel comfortable talking. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for that, but I feel like as an artist and maker, it wasn't until I started woodworking that I was actually able to figure out how to open up that part of myself and explore even further.
1: Right. And how did woodworking come to the front
2: you know, that's a great, a great question. And I, I wonder about that sometimes, like, oh, well, you know, why, why this? And, you know, wh- why not something else? Um, I think mostly because I had grown up, my dad, you know, did a little bit of woodworking as a hobby. But at the Charleston, working at the Charleston Farmer's Market, we had different artisans come and set up on Saturdays as well. And my husband, Joseph, we had a you know a jury process that we did in the beginning to select you know we had a certain amount of spots that we could offer to artists so artists we asked artists to submit some of their work and then we had a jury that would go through and we you know that was the process to get admitted into the market as an artist and he brought in this gorgeous stool it was his it's like his signature piece. Uh, maple. I can't remember. I think the legs on that one particularly might have been walnut, but it was just absolutely stunning. But I thought it was bizarre. It was very modern and different, differently shaped. And it was just something I had never seen before. And I really didn't like it at first. Well, you know, joke's on me. <laughs> we eventually meet and uh, he didn't, you know, at the time, Joseph didn't have a website He had an email address. He had a Hotmail email address and a business card. He didn't have any other kind of online presence, marketing, anything. The market was the Charleston farmers market was his first time really putting his work out there. So he brought me on to work and helped him develop a website and um, start going to shows and stuff like that and kind of brought me in that way. And of course, we started dating (laughs) amidst all that. And one night on a trip, we you know were having dinner, and he said, "You know, if you ever want me to you know build something for you if you want to design something i v- I would love to do that and I just kind of whipped out my scrapbook right there at the the table and was like, "All right, here we go and, and and it was just ever since then it's that you know that was really kind of the turning moment for me to like really start designing and exploring that and I think Joseph's love of woodworking. I knew that it was an unexpected but very welcomed practice for me. But I knew it wasn't going to be my end all as well. I knew I loved to to write. I loved to paint. I, you know, love to get my hands dirty and some clay. And I like to try everything. So I also knew with my physical limitations that furniture design was probably not going to be a good choice for a long-term, like, sustainable career for me. So it's, you know, I kind of fell into woodworking, and I feel like it kind of chose me more than anything. And, you know, just as an aside, growing up and taking science classes, I was never really into science, but I loved learning about trees and the cells and plants and the biology of that. That was something that I really under that was like, the one thing that made sense to me. Don't ask me anything about like physics or chemistry. Uh, But so it just yeah, it's looking back, it's really interesting how that happened. Um, I wonder, you know, what if Joseph had been a metal worker? What if, you know, how, how different things would be. But I'm very glad. Um wood is very apt medium for me and my my journey, I think. So
0: Yeah, sometimes you don't question how that happens or why it happened. You're just like, wow, this is pretty amazing and you kind of roll with it.
2: I'm just here for the ride. <laughs>
0: So in 2013 looks like you you founded Black Swamp is that what you called your woodworking company and so you decided to take it to the to the internet level and 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 give it an official name?
2: Yeah, so knowing that furniture design and furniture making wasn't going to be you know my my lifelong uh skill that I was going to practice I decided I needed to start moving into smaller works, and I also want to finish things a little bit more quickly than furniture usually goes. So I needed something small, and I was so fascinated by the shavings that would come off planes and spoke shaves, and just like the piles of it that would build up in the process. And then, of course, you have the little offcuts and small pieces that you're like, oh, that's. A nice piece of wood but I'm never I'm never going to use this. You know, it just would get tossed or put into the kind of scrap pile. And I was really interested particularly in like the spiral shape of the shavings that would come off. I just thought it was so interesting that, you know, so firm and straight that manipulating it just with a blade could make it completely change shape and make it into something else. And I really like that transformation of the wood. So I wanted to explore that more. So black swamp started out as a small jewelry line of made from off cuts. <laughs> I took those off cuts. I experimented with the shavings and re- quickly realized, you know, they probably weren't durable enough for what I wanted. So that opened another uh, avenue for me in learning how to steam bend. So I started steam bending to create that shape and exploring that. And Black Swamp was it, it was just a really great way for me to kind of make things I couldn't I couldn't find anywhere else make small things that were very satisfying and feel comfortable making my own thing with wood. And since then it's kind of transformed into a lot more than that. I have a lot of different mediums that I work in. So I decided, you know, Finding it, it to just a jewelry line, you know, just wasn't going to be, I needed more space. So now it's kind of more of my creative house, I guess you could say, portfolio. Let's
1: talk about your creative house and, and let's take a step backwards and forwards at the same time. And let's talk about all your different identities as a as a maker and as a human being. You know, you wear lots of different hats and uh, enumerate all those hats. Sure. Sure.
2: Challenging to even figure out how I truly identify with all the different things I do and like how those things connect. I will say early on in my career, I was like, you know, I'm a woodworker, but I do PR, but I do this. And it was like, how does this all make sense? It, it all fell into a nice common thread naturally. And that is centered around really service and compassion. You know, they're, they're really mundane things that happen in life. But that being said, whenever I am able to spend my time and energy, I really want what I do to count. I really want it to mean something. So I guess starting out, you know, artist is a great way to describe me because I do a lot of different creative things. It took me a long time to feel comfortable calling myself an artist, actually. And it still kind of feels weird to say that. But yep, that's, I guess I am uh, a writer as well. I love writing. That is also something I would classify under my art, but I think industry-wise, it's something that's kept so separate that, uh, you know, artist, writer, and um, then advocate, because so much of my work does center around advocacy, or sharing stories of folks that typically haven't been heard from in you know, the Women of Woodworking project is a great example of that. So those are kind of the three big hats that I wear. I'm also a woman, I am a mom, I am a wife. There's a lot of joy in those labels that a lot of people might otherwise say, oh, you know, that's not important either, but I really do uh, take a lot of pride and I'm very grateful to say I'm a mom and a working mom as well, to a disabled mom, all of, all of the things that to people typically don't associate, I think, with people that look like me. You know, they think motherhood is just like all-encompassing, but there are many different facets to us, and motherhood is a, a lovely part of that and it's opened up so much of myself in my art in other ways that I didn't think would would be related to that and it's it's really a beautiful thing.
1: And do you want to talk about your disability and how it's uh it's affected how you wear those hats?
2: Absolutely. So I'm one that I I really think vulnerability is a superpower and just in my experience sharing my story I've you know yes you have ne- negative experiences or comments or things like that but it, the people that you're able to help you it's invaluable even if you're just helping one person i like to think that you know my saving grace has allowed me to help other people and that's a really beautiful thing and uh it, it's not easy you know i feel like there are days that i am just you know like i just need to take care of myself or i'm you know just feeling really flat but overall i feel very comfortable in sharing my story because i know there's so many people out there that aren't you know, for me, it's very normal to hop on, you know, a podcast or something and start talking about the most traumatic parts of my life. But um, I also do that for the people that can't or the people that aren't here. Um, unfortunately, with some of the diseases I've dealt with, you know, they they aren't very kind. So I had a spinal cord injury and bacterial meningitis at 18, and that has led to lifelong Complications, and I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. I also have um, vestibular conditions. Uh, my, my brain just, my nerves are fried. So, <laughs> um, and also I, I deal with this a lot uh, using kind of odd, dark humor <laughs> from time to time. So, um, but I'm a very proud disabled woman. I do a lot of advocacy work around that. And it's also helped me accomplish a lot of things and become the type of person that I want to be. The whole experience and, you know, kind of being a professional patient, you're on the receiving end of people that are there to help you. And uh, I've just been so fortunate to have so many compassionate nurses, so many doctors that listen to me. Um, and, I, you know, and my husband, Joseph, he is, you know, absolutely my just my rock and my caretaker and so um, I'm very proud of my disabled identity and I know that not everyone is and I also feel like everyone has a right to feel and relate to their identity and their disabilities or chronic illnesses whatever they may identify but for me it's something that's just become so normal to talk about and something it's just a part of me so sometimes it's it's hard to have those conversations because you're like, oh, there's so much more to me. But then other times it's very natural to have those conversations. And I find that the more that I have them, the more natural it feels. I, I like to think about when this all started when I was 19 and I was very isolated, very alone, didn't know anyone else that had kind of gone through what I'd gone through. And I just remember thinking like um, if I ever get the opportunity to share my story, to help someone else avoid this, you know, then I'm going to do that. And so that's kind of been my mission. It's taken a long time for me to actually do specific work centering around um, my own journey, you know, being in PR and public relations, you're used to kind of being in the background, you're, you're holding the mic. Um, But I worked for a few years in healthcare and working with other patients made me realize that I had something that I needed to share as well. So um, that's really probably in 2019 was when I first really started opening up about my health issues and starting advocacy focused on on that specifically.
1: So it, it sounds like two major threads going through your life are advocacy and creating communities. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. And um, it's carried over, you know, into my creative work as well. It's like, I can't help it. (laughs) It's just like such a natural thing. I can't just do woodworking. I have to create this whole women of woodworking community, you know, Um, it's just how I am. And I think it goes back to how much I just love connecting with other people, how much I love the exchanges and the things that we can create just in conversations. So to be able to translate that into actual like woodworking or artwork or, you know, whatever that artist may be doing. It's just so beautiful to me. So um, I just can't help it. And I, I am just a natural story hunter. I I also love to research. I am, you know, self-professed nerd you'll find me on the library of Congress website on a Friday night for hours. (laughs) You know, that's, that's just my thing. And, um, and also my experiences as a woman in woodworking, you know, I started out not advocating. I was just making and learning and being an artist. But through those experiences, I realized, hey, there's conversations that need to be had. There are things that need to be said. There's things that I've experienced in my short time here that aren't okay or, or need to be changed or talked about at least. And so in 2015, I think, uh, was when the project first started. And I interviewed Sarah Marriage and Leslie Webb were my first two big interviews. And it just started as a series on my blog, you know, just me reaching out and saying, hey, I would like to talk to you and ask you questions. And it's just grown into now a a community, an international community of woodworkers women trans non-binary makers we have so much more than just woodworking now too it's been really wonderful so that's something also that just kind of happened naturally that the community it was something that was needed and i'm just like the facilitator the community has kind of sustained itself because there has been a few times i've had to take a step back from the project
1: uh, just uh just to step back for a second because we <laughs> we just flew right into it but we were talking a, a- about the Women of Woodworking Project, and it sounds like it had just a very organic beginning. You just decided to interview these two people, Sarah Marriage, and who was the other?
2: Leslie Webb.
1: And without the idea of actually starting a, an organization, an advocacy group, so it just had a very organic beginning. You just saw, it wasn't so much that you saw a need, but you wanted to create some community and talk to some other woodworkers, and it's just evolved from there.
2: Absolutely. So the one experience of my own that I think really prompted me to start the conversation was at Fine Craft Show. My name was on the side up there next to my husband's. My work was there. And if there was just multiple times throughout the show where people would walk up and say, Oh, do you help your husband? Do you cook dinner for him? Or what do you do? Do you how do you support him? And I'm just like, Hello, you know, like, this is mine, too. And feeling so easily like just not even considered as a potential maker in in that situation was like okay they're obviously like the general con, you know f- consensus is like the general view of woodworking is male typically white older And I, you know, it's like looking at me, they don't even, it it doesn't even cross their mind. And I was just like, wow, you know, there's got to be somebody else out there that's experienced this. There's got to be other women out there that have dealt with this because at that point I hadn't really had a lot of engagement with other women woodworkers. I was pretty isolated even with Joseph and how long he had been in the profession already. Yeah, it was hard to find other colleagues, I guess you could say, that had, had dealt with the same thing. So the interviews were that I had reached out on actually on Instagram. I That's how I connected with Sarah and Leslie and started the conversation with them. And having more of those conversations, I realized that my experience was not isolated. I was not the only one. That had been out there work their butt off and then not even be considered you know as as a part of the magic that had been created so it was it was that kind of universal experience and transforming it into something better and a conversation to make things better and to see the work that Leslie and Sarah have both gone on to do is just a testament to that they are both you know groundbreaking Game changers in this industry for women, and I feel very grateful to have that as like the foundation of the project. I feel like we started off on a really good foot with that, and since then, you know, I did, I adjusted the written interviews for a couple of years and um, wanted to start doing more video. And the pandemic actually helped me pivot into that quite nicely, and started doing Instagram live videos, um, live streams once a week, and that opened up. entire world. I was able to interview people in Australia. I was able to interview people on the West Coast. And it also created this content and community for people to be able to refer back to for themselves, for the makers. They had, you know, a big thing for makers to get out of the shop and participate in, in marketing activities. It can be really hard to do that. But this was also a way I felt like anyone could come on and talk with me. So it was it was really fun to talk to all the the different people and hear again, that universal experience of I'm the only one, you know, only woman trans non-binary minority maker in my community woodshop at my job, what have you. That was again, still a universal experience even throughout different countries. And, but what's really remarkable is those folks have also started to create communities like we have. And, technology and the internet has really helped us connect. And so it's really beautiful to see that, yeah, we might have, there might be this problem that we might be, you know, all working to try to fix and make better. But to see all of the uh, minority focused scholarships, co-ops, even in South America, you know, all around the world in the UK, folks, um, just like Sarah Marriage created a workshop of our own in Baltimore. There are a lot of organizations out there doing that now too. So it's been incredible, the growth that's changed just over the last eight years, and I think technology has really helped with that.
1: So speaking of that, how does somebody connect? How do you connect with that community? But give us a give us a, your 30-second PSA on how to connect with the Women of Woodworking community.
2: So the easiest way to connect is on Instagram, and to use the hashtag Women of Woodworking. We have a great community there sharing their work and processes and things like that. There's also a link tree there that links to our other social media pages that, and where people can contact us. We also have a free monthly newsletter with where we highlight um, happenings, exhibitions, articles uh, by women and non-binary makers, and different updates. And then, of course, content that I produce as well. So that's how people can get involved.
1: How does somebody get on that newsletter list?
2: We have a login uh, link, but they can also email me at womenofwoodworking at gmail dot com. Be happy to add them.
1: And the login link is on the.
2: It'll be on, yeah. The login link will be on my link tree at um, Women of Woodworking on Instagram. My link has the link tree on there, and there's a sign up page there. There's also the most recent newsletter on there too, so you can go back and and read the the latest newsletter before you get your next one.
0: And then for those folks that don't do Instagram like Eric, where can I go?
2: Well, um, that's, the, that's the beauty of the project is that it exists in so many different places. With the Furniture Society, we have our affinity group um, that's a, re- a great way to get involved. I also, on my website, um, have kind of a landing page there where you can actually go back and read all of the interviews to 2015.
1: And that would be at the furnituresociety.org, I do believe, is the Furniture Society's it's website. It's org. Oh, oh, okay. Fair. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for the correction.
0: And then you said ktthompson.com com- is yours. Okay. How has the reaction from outside the the community that you've created. How's the reaction been outside of that?
2: Yeah. Well, um,
0: I know, I know that's probably a touchy question, but I, you know, that, that, that's probably the kind of stuff that does come up.
2: Sure. It Um, absolutely does. And I'll say I feel very fortunate in the regard that I don't know if it's the distance of, you know, the internet that people that puts us between people, um, I haven't gotten a whole lot of negative feedback in the beginning when everybody was kind of loose fingers there on Instagram, on social media before they realized, hey, like this is these are real words and real people I'm talking to. I would get the occasional offhand comment, but before I could even respond, you know, somebody else was already chiming in and, and helping me out. But honestly, I haven't gotten a whole lot of negative feedback on it. I think because also the project is we're we're here to share stories and share people's experiences. We're not really here to, you know, bash other people or um, you know, I want to focus on the people that I'm interviewing and their experiences. And yes, not everybody has you know, such an easy time being a minority or being somebody different, whether it's in a wood shop or just in life. And I I think there's a responsible way to have these types of conversations without being completely inflammatory because facts are facts. And uh, that's, uh, you know, so I I think having that approach has, has also helped. I have had some feedback, you know, some events that were open to, you know, women and non-binary makers only there were folks that were like, Hey, I don't identify, but I would love to be here and learn from this person. So that was something that I had to think about and say, okay, yes, it's really important we create this safe space. But there was also a threshold where you, we want to make this, we want to reach more people, we want to change more minds, we want to include more folks. And so we're kind of in that point right now, we've, um, especially with the Furniture Society, we had an affinity, affinity group that we had for two years, which was absolutely wonderful. And now it's transformed into doing interviews again, because people want to participate. They want to hear the speakers. Everybody is just more engaged right now, which is really wonderful. And um, any kind of little fundraiser I've had or uh, anything I've shared, my followers have been just so uh, responsive and supportive. And believe it or not, a lot of my bigger supporters are men and they're very respectful but they support in a way that they know is best whether it's you know sharing something or just attending an event or doing a small fundraiser they are you know given a donation those all of those things matter and that's one thing that I want to encourage to just everyone is like yes there's a lot of really heated and hard conversations going on now but even your smallest gestures, your smallest efforts are a step forward. It increases that momentum. So just keep going.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting talking about a lot of these issues on on how they can quickly morph into the bigger issues of what we as the the mountains, the the Himalayas that we have to climb as a society to sort of reach uh, equity, uh, parity, humanity. And I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't feel capable of tackling them. With. In this podcast, politics is indefinitely a part of life and what we choose to do. And being creative people, you, you almost immediately out yourself as being different, which is a challenge in this society because this is a society that relishes conformity
2: that's, we talk about being different. That's something that has always been so natural to me. I mean, I s- stuck out like a sore thumb growing up in the upstate of South Carolina. And it's something that I've just had to get used to. But I also learned that things that came so naturally to me to express myself, to feel certain feelings, to create certain things, to even to just stand up and answer a question in a classroom, you know, that's, especially in the South, being a woman, I was basically, you know, trying to break barriers, even as a kid, not even realizing that you don't realize how ingrained some of the systemic, you know, things that just hold us back, things that hold women or people who are different in general back. It's not something that's celebrated. It's not something that's like, oh, you can do this really cool skill. It's like, oh, don't do that. That's weird. And that's really hard to be somebody different growing up in. And that was a big thing that I had to overcome that even took me years into my practice is ignoring that voice that's like, that's stupid. That's weird. Why are you doing that? Like, why are you being so different? And now, I just I, I had to keep being different because that was just who I am. I couldn't make myself into something I'm not.
0: Because it is you. Because it is weird. <laughs> That's
2: the beauty. Of it. I like being weird, but I think also it.
0: Yeah, weird is good. It's make,
2: given me the skill to just be myself and be very genuine and authentic and as much as I can, because I genuinely want to connect with people as well. I also think that's a very rare thing. We're used to people wanting to talk about themselves and talk, talk, talk. Like I like to listen and people aren't, aren't used to that. And I now, you know, I, I think by sharing that energy, I'm trying to show people that they should be themselves as well. They should feel safe enough and comfortable enough that we all deserve to feel that way. You know, not all of us might be as weird as I am, but you should feel, confident enough to create, create that item, or, you know, that piece you want to create to take that class you want to take or look into this skill. I'm so tired of the world, judging people for being happy and for seeking joy and for seeking fulfillment. Because I mean, (laughs) we can't take any of this material stuff wherever, you know, like this, when we're gone, that's it. it doesn't matter to, to us or to anyone. But we can create so much more with that, with the connections we make and, you know, the people we love and the art that we create and just the things that we leave. Um, I also think we don't value our we don't value ourselves enough as people. We're so used to this system treating us badly that we think we deserve the abuse that this, you know, society, you know, inflicts on us for being different or for, you know, trying to even just be ourselves. and. It, it, it reflects in, you know, how we treat each other as well. And I just, I want everyone to, to know that they, you deserve better. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to chase that passion. You deserve to, to do that thing that, you know, you're holding back from doing because somebody might think it's weird or you're different. Like, trust me the joy that you will get from finally being able to be yourself. Like you'll be like, Oh, why did I even listen to that person in the first place? And that's what it's all about. It's not about what other people think. Like who cares? You know, anyway,
0: (laughs) right? No, not anyway. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, uh, that is obviously a, a, a big thing to bite off, but, I think uh, I think a, a very important part of that piece, and I think a very important part of, of art is, is creating narratives for people to see, whether they're you know the you know these type of oral histories, or or telling people stories. And you know, I'd like to talk about you know your pen and chisel website and telling stories and telling children's stories, which are also really important. So where does that all fit into the the big picture of of Katie Thompson in terms of uh storytelling and writing and interviewing and
2: uh Yeah, so Pin and Chisel started in um I started that in 2021. Basically, the Women of Woodworking project had grown to where I had so much content, so many people I wanted to interview, but I needed platforms to be able to do this. And I got really sick of the process of pitching and getting rejected. And then, you know, it was really awesome, the people that I did get to work with. But I I just needed I needed a platform, I needed something. And um, so pen and chisel started out as just being a digital journal for me to be able to share these interviews to share the stories that I'm chasing down, uh, you know, researching in the wee hours of the morning. Um, and also a platform for people to feel comfortable to submit their own work and their own articles. And because a lot of makers do have things they want to say, but you know, the likelihood of them pitching a piece and getting into another like major woodworking publication is pretty slim. So it, it kind of had, again, that community feel of being able to submit what you want. And we had some really, we've had some really great submissions as far as, um, research into, um, you know, different furniture makers and histories and then talking about more contemporary issues, um, different identities and LGBTQ plus issues and things like that. So it was basically, I need we needed a space to be able to talk about things that larger woodworking media was not discussing. And at that point, you still didn't see a lot of women in woodworking media um, like you even see today. But um, so it started out as kind of this huge monthly journal that had a lot of really love and effort put into it. I slowly started to feel like the quality of the stories themselves that I was pursuing was not getting enough attention was not getting enough. You know, I was more focused on creating this publication than sharing a story that, you know, mattered to me. And and that didn't really speak to me. So I've shifted back now to just reducing it down to being about the different research and stories that I'm looking at. And then also still taking reader submissions and things like that. So pen and chisel has it's turned into kind of my public journal and um, where I talk about different craft issues, accessibility um Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. I worried about when I changed the format of being, you know, a larger publication, trying to do many different things to, okay, here's, you know, a a newsletter, essentially, you know, a small journal that you're going to get, you know, a personal letter from me, essentially, I was worried, you know, people weren't going to see the value in that. But it was really lovely. All of my subscribers were actually stayed on. I didn't lose any subscribers, but I actually had subscribers email me and be like, yes, we're, we're here because we love your stories and we love your work. And if you feel like this is going to make it better and more robust, then do what you got to do. So, um, kind of like exploring that transition right now. And, um, it's hard. It's, I, I have found that I just love so many different things to try to like narrow it down to one thing is also really difficult, but it's slowly allowing me to create the kind of content that I, I want to create and share the stories um, that I think need to be shared that you can't read elsewhere.
1: And and where do the children's books fall into all of that?
2: Right. So in 2015, I uh, was doing, going really hard at black swamp and making my own work, but I was working with a lot of epoxy and really nasty things. And, you know, just being pregnant was, really hard on me. And um, so I decided I'd always a long time goal of mine was to write a children's book. And again, it was kind of like, why woodworking? But at that point, it was also like, why not woodworking, you know, and um, developed this story and decided to take time off during my pregnancy to write the book and also produce it. So we had a Kickstarter and um, it was really awesome. Um, I had the book a Illustrated and designed by Kristen Selecki and she was in Charleston at the time. Wonderful, very talented artist who believed in Little Beaver and uh, his his story. So the book is Little Beaver Builds a Bed and it's about a beaver who wanders into his dad's workshop, learns a little bit about woodworking and tools and responsibility and in the end they get to create a really meaningful project together. So um, that I was, that was published, uh, self-published in, uh, January of 2016. So that was, um, a really great experience. I, the day I brought my son home from the hospital, I got the like first, you know, hard proof copy. And it was just like, this is really awesome. So
1: why children's books? Well, I'm just, I'm just curious. Why did you always want to write a children's book? And apparently you're writing another one, right?
2: Um, not writing a children's book right now. I've have actually um, helped produce a second one uh, with my longtime friend and um, former colleague, Dr. Valerie Holmstrom. Um, she had written a book, um, Bo-, um, Bo Peep is My Name, and that was actually about um, children's abuse and trauma and recovery through um, the story of a, a, a abandoned um, and fo- you know eventually fostered and adopted dog. So um, children's books. I'm, I'm not sure why. That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know if the story just fit that. Almost
0: like you're not, almost like you're not sure why woodworking.
2: Yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> the, the universe spoke to you. <laughs> it
2: really did. It, it did. And I don't, I don't know why, I really don't know why woodworking and I'm not sure. I, I guess also at that point, Um, I was writing a lot on women of woodworking and I was really focused on, okay, I want to, how can I make the changes that I want to see in this industry? What are, what are ways that I can do that? What are the tools I have? And I created Little Beaver the way I did because I wanted my son to be able to read it and understand why mom and dad don't clock in at an office nine to five and to see that there are other ways to live and to understand the joy of creating and working together. And um, that was something that really pushed me. So I figured, you know, if we can get in there early and teach kids about these things that maybe it'll help them, you know, discover woodworking at an earlier age or a love for creativity at an earlier age, but um, also have it, be something that even if you're not a woodworker, you can connect with the story and that relationship between father and son, you know, parents and um, building family and building beds.
1: <laughs> so you actually do know why you did it. You were trying to create the narrative that you'd like to see children grow up with. I am curious, are you going to write a book now? Are you, are you going to write a series of essays on women of woodworking? Are you going to, Are you going to publish something?
2: Well, I would love to, and I'm definitely feeling the urge to do that. And it's, again, riding with the flow of things and figuring it out. It's kind of like which I do so many different things. I'm like, which one is going to pop up first? And how is it all going to tie together? But um, I actually, with the Women of Woodworking Project, eventually would like to uh, create some sort of collection of the stories, um, whether that's through you know a chapbook or something small like that. Um, I also, my long-term goal would be to create a scholarship fund, um, for women, trans, non-binary makers to be able to get education and the opportunities and things that, you know, weren't even accessible to me. You know, quite frankly, I got really lucky that my husband had already been woodworking for a decade pretty much before I met him. So, um, it's not like that for everyone. So any way that, that I can kind of Use what I've got to give back, and you know, help pull somebody up, else up. I, I generally believe there's room for everyone, so um, I would like to write a book that would somehow benefit to, to that end. So I, you know, I, I it's terrible. I I probably should look at my work and think, okay, how do, how can I make money? But a lot of times I'm like, okay, how can I make money to give away? <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, we
1: keep on. Touching around the edges of political issues here, but I, I firmly believe that part of really truly expressing yourself really isn't have anything to do about money. I think there are there is definitely boundaries of how much money we need in this life. Uh, contrary to public belief, you only need X amount, and the rest is about self fulfillment. Enough enough of that lecture. <laughs> um, the most important question, really as we start to wrap this up is what are you working on now and, or what's next on your, your docket?
2: Yeah. So right now I, I've been doing a lot of media, a lot of writing content creation, that sort of thing, sharing other people's stories, which is never going to stop. But I am also in a good position now, as far as my commissions and things like that, that I'm actually able to start just creating work for the heck of it. So, um, when I do get some time and everything, the universe balances itself and I can get down in the shop, I have a lot of just conceptual pieces I would like to finally explore that have, you know, been in my uh, sketchbook for years, kind of just waiting for the opportune time. Um, I I love doing the work that I do and making jewelry and making things that people really love. And, but you know, sometimes I just want to make weird stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah. So right now there is some, just really punky kind of maple down there that I'm going to somehow work into kind of, uh, again, tying into the disabilities, you know, and my experience with my back, kind of a kind of chest breastplate sort of piece, um, with that maple and kind of different layers behind it. So kind of like a shield almost, um, that's the one particular piece I'm really aching to get down there and work on. But, um, in my administrative side of things, um, I'm working with the Wood Art Alliance as their social media and admin director and um, creating and expanding the community of wood art and what wood art really is over there, which is, has been a lot of a lot of fun. Um, and that has just been a really great transition. I'm doing so much with women of woodworking. It was just very natural for me to take go into that position and just now I get to share everybody's work over there which is really awesome I
1: think the work that's true to ourselves and feels like tells our own story and other people's stories is the work that rings true and I think is powerful so I uh plaudits to you for everything you do it's it sounds wonderful and thanks for being a guest on on why make
0: why make Yeah, thank you very much, Katie. And as we usually end all our shows, Why Make?
2: Thank you all so much. I I just really appreciate the opportunity to share my story. And, you know, why not?
1: You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website,
0: why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the holy pockets of Robin Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at whymakepod. At this episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.